This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Dave Chase, the author of Relocalizing Health on our show. Dave is also the creator, co-founder, and CEO of Health Rosetta, an ecosystem for scaling adoption of practical nonpartisan fixes to our healthcare system by enabling public and private employers in unions to reduce their health benefits. And they've been able to do that by 20% or more while improving the quality of care for plan members. Daniel, I couldn't be more excited to have Dave Chase on our show as he is pushing forward the healthcare revolution. You know, Eric, this interview with Dave is one that leaders in value-based care need to hear, and not just leaders in healthcare. I mean, we're talking leaders in governments, leaders of, of employers, leaders across the board. And Dave speaks from the heart, and that passion really comes through. In his life, he's seen close friends irreparably harmed and devastated by healthcare. As an entrepreneur and business leader, he's also seen the scale of financial and medical devastation brought on to America by our healthcare industry. Most Americans are tragically just one healthcare episode away from financial ruin. On top of that, you have a severely distressed healthcare system due to the massive public health crises of COVID-19 and the opioid epidemic. And Dave Chase, in leading this movement to relocalizing health, believes that we can stop the opioid epidemic, fix underfunding of education by making healthcare more affordable and prevent future healthcare crises. Daniel, what I love about Dave's message is that he doesn't seek government solutions. He believes we can transform healthcare by employers, communities, and value-based primary care leading the way. So let's now kick it over to our amazing interview with Dave Chase as he tells us how relocalizing health is key to winning this race to value. Dave Chase, welcome to Race to Value. Well, looking forward to the chat. Thanks so much for having me on. Same here. We're excited. And I thought a great place for us to start today would actually be with the title of your book, which is Relocalizing Health. The future is local, open, and independent. Generally speaking, relocalization is a strategy to build communities based on the local production of food, energy, and goods. When applied to healthcare, 
a relocalization effort can bring about systemic change much more effectively than a top-down prescriptive approach from the federal government. It can lead to strengthen local economies, improved population health, higher value and care delivery, and health equity. In your book, you advocate for community members to take back control, and you posit that change always happens through grassroots movements. You make a compelling case that health doesn't start in a pill or a hospital. It starts at home with parents, with neighborhoods, with workplaces, with communities. And the subtitle of the book, The Future is Local, Open, and Independent, is powerful in getting the reader to connect with this concept of relocalization and health. Why local? Because it realigns entrenched politics and eliminates one-size-fits-all solutions that prevent optimal effectiveness. Why open? Because open-sourced ideas and communities move faster than coalesced information that are at the national level. And this explains why, for example, it takes 17 years for healthcare breakthroughs to become mainstream in clinical practice. And then why independent? Because combining the best of the local economy with the benefits of modern financial and technology infrastructure is the key to success in post-political movements. So for, for our listeners out there that better want to understand this theory of relocalizing health, can you explain how our country can go about redoing health insurance to support the healthcare system we want, not the one that we've got? And what is Health Rosetta doing to bring health back to communities? Yeah, thanks for that intro. And I guess it would start with our theory of change that you mentioned, that great societal change always happens bottom-up, grassroots. And in the first chapter of the book, you mentioned we talk about the system change model that we have adopted. We were sort of instinctually doing it, but then I met and became friends with the, the architect of the system change model, which has lifted tens of millions of people out of poverty in India, abroad. And then when he came back to the States, he's played an integral role in remaking probably the single biggest input into our food system, wheat. And the gist of this system change model is you don't have to invent something new in an ivory tower or some think tank. Fundamentally, around our country, around the world, people are problem solvers. And so the challenge is finding out who's actually tackled these problems. And then the key from that point is to apply a little business know-how, a little technology, sometimes some capital to massively replicate, not scale. There's a big difference between adaptable replication and scaling one single thing. I mean, a scaling is a Facebook, you know, that's great for a venture capital model, but the fact is we have a highly diverse world, highly diverse country, things need to be adapted. And this kind of one size fits all doesn't really work. And we see this ranging from South Central Alaska with the NUCA model, one of the best systems in the world in really tough circumstances to in the opposite corner of the country. We'll probably talk about what's happened with Rosen Hotels and just incredible story. Both of these efforts have been probably two decades in the making, more than that in the case of Rosen. Or if you want to look abroad, go to Jan Schoping, Sweden. One of the misconceptions is that some of the nationalized healthcare systems are just monolithic. The reality is in a place at like Jan Schoping, it's actually better than say Stockholm. And they've really adopted the same basic model and recognized that 
oftentimes what we would call primary diagnosis, something like diabetes or hypertension, they would say, no, actually the primary diagnosis, whether you're in Nuka model or Jan Chopin, whatever, might be loneliness, might be dependence, things like that. The secondary diagnosis will manifest itself as a medical thing. So those are the types of things that really make a difference. And so what we've done is said, let's just start with first principles. I'll just give you a few examples with what we're doing with Health Rosetta. There's an expression I really like that's, that says something to the effect of transformation moves at the speed of trust. And trust is built through complete transparency. By the way, price is just a small portion of the transparency picture. And it starts with, frankly, kind of boring stuff like the legal and economic underpinnings of health plans, which are, are incredibly rotten in our system. And so we make contracting sexy <laughs> with the, the folks that in our sort of bootstrap self-funded model that we've built, we've had over 1,500 benefits brokers apply to our program. 215 have made it through that gauntlet and transparency in the way they're paid is foundational. We found up to 17 undisclosed revenue streams that the sponsor of the health plan, like an employer or union, had no idea about. Another first principle is there's no well-functioning healthcare system in the world not built on proper primary care. Another first principle is healthcare isn't expensive. After all, only 27 cents of every dollar ostensibly spent on healthcare goes to the value creators, the clinicians. What's expensive is profiteering and price gouging and administrative bloat and fraud. So you get rid of that stuff. And there's, there's more first principles, but the last one I'll give you is, is with this grassroots bottom up, you start with fractals. And even tech, which we think of as pretty fast moving, has gone this way. If you think about the internet that we take for granted now, and it really took off in the mid 90s, well, there was all kinds of foundation laid that people kind of take for granted in that you had PCs and people bought PCs and like, gee, it'd be nice to share files and printers. So then you had local area networks and they kind of got linked together. And then they're like, gee, it'd be nice to communicate with our business partners or other offices. So you had wide area networks. So the literal and metaphorical wiring had been laid for the internet because there was a common protocol there. So we're doing kind of that same type of thing. Long answer there, but those are sort of the things that we think about. Dave, last year, Marty McCary, a professor at Johns Hopkins and author of The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It, published an op-ed revealing how many federal dollars the healthcare cost beast is consuming. And the research out of John Hopkins shows that healthcare is eating nearly half of all federal spending, which includes funding for Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, military health benefits, health benefits for federal employees and their dependents, plus interest. Our federal government spends 48% of its money on healthcare and still Healthcare devastates state budgets all across this country with serious consequences that we're already seeing in public health and education. Sadly, it's this bloated healthcare spending that did more to devastate public health funding than anything else over the last few decades. The center investment in public health has made us seriously unprepared for the COVID-19 pandemic, making it far worse than it needed to be. And you make a compelling case for how the healthcare system itself has become the greatest immediate threat to our freedom to pursue health and the American dream. 
And you go into great detail on that in your TED Talk that you did a few years ago and the first book as well that you wrote for which that talk was inspired. And what is most alarming in your transformational work, Dave, is how well you're able to show how healthcare has redistributed virtually all salary increases from employees to the underperforming healthcare system over the last 20 years, really creating an economic depression for the working and middle class. Given that healthcare is choking funding for public health, education, public infrastructure, and social services, can you describe how an effective relocalization strategy can provide us with a post-Copernican point of view where hospitals and medical technology are no longer at the center of the health universe? In this era of relocalization, how can we rethink economic development with individual and community health as our overriding concern? Yeah, great question. I mean, really the old economic development model as it applies to healthcare is, you know, you get a sugar high from adding to the hospital edifice complex that adds to an obese sick care system. That, as you mentioned, it steals from public health, it steals from kids, education, social services, public infrastructure, et cetera. Whereas what I outline in the book is economic development 3.0 plays the health card, not the sick care card where things like investing in kids and education actually has as much or bigger impact on overall health outcomes. And it takes things like hospitalizations and really the starting point is every hospitalization virtually, there's some exceptions, but it's a good rule of thumb is a failure. That's the starting point. Rather than this current model where these poor hospital CEOs are being treated like hotel general manager just trying to fill beds. I mean, it's bizarre. When a hospitalization, if you go upstream enough, sometimes you don't have to go very far upstream. It just have proper primary care. You know, half ER visits aren't emergencies. Sometimes you have to go further upstream to social determinants. As we speak, as you alluded to, we're seeing how COVID is really a super spreader event on a set of pre-existing societal conditions, overwhelmingly impacted by healthcare. You touched on the fact that I want to really emphasize because one definition of an economic depression you mentioned is two or more years of wage stagnation decline. So you have the working and middle class in the United States of America that is an economic depression more than twice as long as the Great Depression in the U.S. and longer than 1930s Germany. You're going to have some crazy stuff when that happens. And you see COVID is just highlighting that, but that existed well before COVID. And it's also why I think it's such a dramatic event. It's going to cause a real rethink as we come out of it. Dave, I was thinking about this influential book I read a few years ago, David Goldhill's Catastrophic Care, Why Everything We Think We Know About Healthcare is Wrong. And I know you make reference to his work in your new book as well. And Goldhill's use of well-sourced figures to draw conclusions about how American workers are getting fleeced by the medical industrial complex is unbelievable. This is especially true for the millennial generation, which is the first generation in American history where life will not be better than their parents because healthcare is stealing their future and their hope for that American dream. Before Goldhill's research, who could have imagined that during their adult lives, one out of every $2 earned by millennials will go to a healthcare system that is the polar opposite of what they want and value. 
If that current trajectory is not altered, millennials would become indentured servants to the healthcare system, spending half to two-thirds of their lifetime earnings on healthcare. So in this healthcare reform movement of relocalization, where solutions are coming from the edges, from forward-looking employers and innovative towns, fed-up physicians, how can we also make sure that millennials are part of this movement? With so much at stake, Dave, it seems like they can drive a tremendous change in health benefits unlike we've ever seen. So I wanted to ask you, how can we activate this millennial generation and take their desire for social equity, health and wellness and innovation to ultimately improve the healthcare system as we know it? Yeah, I mean, I really highlighted Goldhill's work and some of his figures and expanded on that in a chapter in my book that's entitled Healthcare is Stealing Millennials' Future, but they will take it back. I believe that this challenge is monumental, and I believe that they can be the greatest generation of this century, just as the so-called greatest generation happened coming out of World War II. And it's already happening in other areas related to healthcare. If you look at so-called big food and big soda, they're having some of their worst earnings attributed to millennials because they're waking up to these food-like substances that they've been consuming aren't doing them any favors. And the oldest millennials now, believe it or not, are 40 years old. And they're starting to pay attention to their own health and their kids, increasingly their boomer parents, right? They're going to be taking on more of their responsibility. And they have absolutely no loyalty to the status quo. And it's understandable why that is. They are a generation that's got massive student debt. Why is that? Well, Bill Gates devoted a TED Talk to how healthcare has driven up costs for higher education because, as you mentioned, at the state level, which is most of the funding for education at the state level, healthcare continues to be this Pac-Man that gobbles up everything. And so tuition's gone way up. At the same time, Millennials' parents haven't been able to save due to healthcare. You know, the average boomer, if healthcare inflation had grown at the rate of regular inflation, and he just invested the spread between what's happened with healthcare spending and what would have happened if healthcare inflation had grown at the rate of regular inflation, the average boomer would have over a million dollar nest egg if they just invested in S and P index fund. And so you can understand why they've got no no loyalty. And does anybody really think that the current system is optimized towards millennials? And they're already the largest generation in history, larger than boomers. They're the largest chunk of the workforce. In five years' time, they and and their successors, the Gen Z, are going to be 75% of the workforce. And so employers are incredibly ill-prepared by delivering these old line failing health plans that they've been offering their employees that have also stolen their pay increases. So I believe they will drive it. Ultimately, we all want millennials, want, we want better food, you know, we want smartphones, we want internet media. They were the ones who drove the, the change there. And I believe they'll drive the change in healthcare as well. Wow, Dave, such important things to be thinking about. Another important thing I want to bring up with you is uh, as we talk about this community-led movement to relocalize health, we also need to figure out how to address the terrible scourge of the national opioid epidemic and the crisis that it is that's devastating our communities. 
more than 760,000 people have died since 1999 from a drug overdose. And two out of three drug overdose deaths involve an opioid. Overwhelmingly, those suffering from opioid use disorders are working age people or their dependents. Employers are unwitting accomplices and enablers as well as victims. Through our health benefits, we've funded a self-inflicted wound that's emblematic of an even broader dysfunction that's so pervasive in our healthcare system. The COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated the issue with overdose up 42% year over year. It seems that this opioid crisis has been over 30 years in the making and companies have played a major role in creating and sustaining the crisis by contracting with PBMs that design formularies that are really about optimizing their bottom line. And what I learned from reading your book is that there is now a vanguard of employers that are realizing that they have a major role to play in solving the crisis and that the solutions fall well beyond what the government alone can do. Given that this opioid epidemic is a microcosm and mirror of our failing healthcare system as a whole, can you explain how ending it will move us meaningfully down the path towards solving a larger crisis? And beyond the role of employers taking the lead here, what role and impact does rebuilding primary care in communities have on solving the opioid crisis? In this move to value-based care, will moving away from volume-centric health systems designed to maximize fee-for-service revenue remove the incentive for non-evidence-based treatments such as opioids for surgeries or back pain? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are great points. The last book I wrote before the Relocalizing Health book is called The Opioid Crisis Wake-Up Call. And the core thesis of that book is the opioid crisis isn't an anomaly. It is our healthcare system. And I drilled into 11 of the 12 major drivers of the opioid crisis. Most people candidly are oversimplifying the opioid crisis and 11 of those 12 major drivers, as you, you hit on the key unwitting enabler is the employer. And I'll just make it personal for a second and share my own lower back pain story. Lower back pain is the second most common reason for people going to the doctor. It's the number one driver of disability. It's the number one driver of opioid prescriptions and the number one driver of spinal surgeries, even though there's zero evidence that opioids or spinal surgeries are the most effective treatment for lower back pain. But there's great margin in it. Guess what? We're getting lots of that. And also say that when my lower back pain really kicked in, it was when I was still at Microsoft way back. And that was back in Microsoft's heyday where literally you paid not a dime for anything on your health benefits. It was all you can eat buffet. Yet I would argue I've got better benefits now than what I had at Microsoft, even though we're a self-funded bootstrapped nonprofit and public benefit corporation. Why is that? Because we have value-based primary care. And when I was having that lower back pain, you know, when you're in that extreme pain and it feels like there's a knife in your back, you're like, just give me a pill if that's going to solve it, right? And I, I figured out pretty quickly that this issue would come back. And as you can probably tell reading my book, I'm very much a get at the root cause kind of guy. And so I got some physical therapy and then ultimately, you know, probably the book I've given more to anybody is a book called Pain-Free. And it really helps at a layman's level, let you understand what's going on. And what we see is going back to the millennials, 
The number one cause of death for people under 40 is opioids. It used to be automobile accidents. It's opioids. As you said, it's gotten worse during COVID. And sort of to accentuate the opioid crisis not being an anomaly, but being our healthcare system, benzos, which is the category of drugs for things like anti-anxiety, you know, your, your Xanax, Valium, and so on, they're pretty much tracking the way opioids have about a decade behind. And given what's going on with COVID, increases in these drugs have gone up 62%. And people will tell you that going through withdrawals from opioids feels like you're going to die. Going through withdrawals from benzos, you may die. It's a really risky thing. And a lot of people are being prescribed these medications with no plan on how they get out of that. And that's the type of thing that you really have to get at the root cause of this issue. And you look at employers like a Rosen Hotels where they didn't come up with an anti-opioid program 25 years ago when this thing kind of started. They just had proper primary care. And guess what? Their opioid prescriptions are at one-sixth of the level of a typical U.S. employer, despite having jobs that are physically demanding, like maids and maintenance workers and so on. So, of course, there's a lot of things going on with the opioid crisis, but overwhelmingly, when you have proper primary care that has the proper time, proper incentives, you basically don't have an opioid issue. That's really the bottom line on it. Dave, at this point in the interview, many of our listeners are probably thinking, how in the heck did we possibly create such a systemically flawed and broken healthcare system? What I love about your book is that you provide that historical context in a way that allows us to learn from the past so we never repeat those mistakes in the future. There was actually a point when I was reading your book and I recalled visiting Dachau and walking the grounds of that concentration camp, praying that history would never repeat itself. And when we remember the Holocaust, we often think of it as a terrible thing that happened in a far off time and place, something so horrible. We can never imagine it in our own society. But is that really the case? I know I'm using an extreme example here to make a point, but healthcare is so broken. I mean, it's created an economic depression in the middle class. The opportunity costs and future liabilities strip away opportunities from the lives of our children. Medical errors kill thousands, hundreds of thousands of people each year. The profit above all else mentality creates devastating consequences like opioid addiction. And healthcare is the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in our country. And when we look at why healthcare is so broken, which is the lesson we must learn never to repeat once we fix it, it seems like it just simply comes down to the money. In reviewing history, our problems really started, as you allude to in your book, with the tax policy in the 1940s. And during World War II, we had wage controls, but employer-paid benefits didn't count as wages. And to attract employees, employers started offering more and more health benefits without paying attention to what those benefits cost. And in your book, you state that this is our original sin and also the fount of our redemption. And today, the tax break for employer-paid benefits is estimated to be at over $600 billion, making it the largest tax break in the tax code and the nation's second largest entitlement after Medicare and the primary wage suppression driver. So, Dave, as our country initiates a grassroots movement to relocalize health with employers, communities, and primary care leading the way – what recommendations would you make to the Biden administration to catalyze the relocalization of health? Also, I wanted to ask you at the community level, 
I mean, what should be some of the key strategies for civic leaders to make health local again? And I love how in your new book, you describe, you know, Dr. Zubin Demania or ZDog MD's Health 3.0 vision as our North Star with Health Rosetta providing us the roadmap to help us get there. I'd love to hear more about that. Definitely. Well, in terms of the first part, the Biden administration recommendation, I would say three things that I would do. Given particularly a divided government, and you have to look at what things haven't been done, what can be done, and where I would focus in on pragmatically is, number one, the regulatory environment that basically looks over the employer arena is called ERISA passed during the Ford administration, basically in response to, I think it was Studebaker bankruptcy and, and the pensions not being funded. And in general, employers do a reasonably good job on the retirement benefits side of that, of you know, adhering to their fiduciary duty, where you know, fiduciary duty is about treating money like it's your own and paying only reasonable cost and really being careful. And the other half of ERISA is health benefits. And frankly, it hasn't been really enforced there. And so I would make that super clear that if you want you know, to make a big change, you make it happen there and you end up having kind of a self-policing that goes on where when employers are doing the wrong thing, there's been cases that have gone all the way to the Supreme Court that really keep the 401k industry in line. So that'd be number one is they could, whether it's Biden or it's the labor secretary says, Arissa, we're taking it seriously, really get after it. That would have a massive impact that I think people would really underestimate. Number two is procurement. You know, government often is one of the early drivers of things, whether it's advanced battery technology or aerospace or the internet. Across the U.S., there's 22 million public sector workers. I think there's about four to five million in the federal area. They should adopt the model language that we have in contracts that can get rid of a lot of the profiteering and fraud and whatnot. And they can have a massive influence there all over the country because federal workers are all over the place and they're wasting money just as much as a regular employer is. No act of Congress is required to do this. And they continue to procure from the organizations that have given us the, the economic depression for the working and middle class that have given us the opioid crisis, the what rising benzos crisis, they've given us the devastation to public health budgets. And so, so why would we continue to trust them would be my point. And then the third piece is, I believe these community owned health plans, and it might be a cooperative structure. It's quasi, you know, there was some cooperatives, there's a couple remaining from the, the ACA. Those aren't really true grassroots cooperatives. They call them a cooperative but give them some flexibility, right? If they decide they want to exclude profiteering and price gouging hospitals, they should be allowed to do that. If everybody comes in, there's basically kind of cartel type behavior that makes it hard to stand up new health plans. They could do some things, longer discussion, but there's some opportunity there. And also I think they could tap into in the tax bill that passed during this past administration, there's something called opportunity zones, which has mainly been about like physical plant investment tax breaks, like on real estate. 
why not have those tax breaks apply to setting up some of these community-owned cooperative type models, encourage social impact investors to back them. I know there's a lot of folks who are very kind of awakened to the Black Lives Matter. Maybe there's there's cooperative structures in some of these disadvantaged communities that there could be some tax breaks around that. And then in terms of the civic leaders, again, similar things where they're large purchasers of healthcare. We're helping, our community is helping some cities where one, they had a $7 million budget deficit because of COVID, because of tax receipts going down. Guess what? We cleaned up the health plan and the savings that we're projecting is about $7 million. It's on the conservative side, frankly, based on what we've seen in other locales. And so they too should take advantage of their purchasing power and recognize some of what we talked about earlier in terms of the economic development 3.0. And then speaking of 3.0, you talked about Zubin Demania and the Health 3.0. I actually spelled this out in more detail in the book. And if you go to healthrosetta.org slash health30, kind of go into this. But here's how I'd sum it up. It's taking the best aspects of kind of health 1.0, these kind of deep sacred relationships, physician autonomy, and so on, that those good facets with the key pieces of 2.0, health 2.0, that our healthcare 2.0, the good parts, some of the technology, some of the evidence, some of the team-based model systems thinking. And what health 3.0 does is restores the human relationship that's really at the heart of healing while bolstering it with a team that revolves around the patient while supporting each other as fellow caregivers. Because frankly, most of the caregiving isn't done by professionals. It's you and me caring for ourselves and our loved ones. And what emerges is vastly greater than the sum of the parts. And again, you can go into more detail in the book on that, but it's really a nice reset. And that's a key thing across all of this. I sometimes draw the analogy with the built environment because there's this effort called LEED. It's a green building standard. And the built environment's kind of like healthcare. It's really local. It's really entrenched. And it took probably 20 years to sort of fully mainstream LEED. But here's what LEED didn't do. They didn't say, here's our new blueprint, put a recycle bin in a polluting coal power building and we'll call it green. You know, they came up with a new blueprint. It was adopted kind of locale by locale. It grew over time. The old waned over time. And people who frankly don't care about the environment, but are using it because the return on investment is so clear. We see the same thing happening here where locale by locale, places like Tyler, Texas, are rebuilding healthcare, starting with primary care, starting with the transparency I mentioned from the ground up. And that's how you drive to a new model. And it does take some time, but guess what? Any large societal change does take time. Well, I completely agree, Dave, that it does start with value-based primary care. And, you know, that's crucial within the health 3.0 model. You know, as you were speaking, I started thinking about this conversation that we had a few months ago with Dr. David Nace, the chief medical officer for Innovacer, when he was on our podcast. And he told us a story about how his good friend and colleague at Innovacer, Dr. Paul Grundy, ended up being known as the godfather of the patient-centered primary care revolution during his tenure as chief medical officer and global director of health transformation at IBM. Basically, that legendary moment occurred 
when he held the four CEOs of leading primary care organizations captive in an IBM boardroom and told them he wouldn't allow them to leave until they came up with a set of guiding principles for large employers that will empower value-based primary care. And in your book, you make reference to Dr. Grundy's work at IBM, and you mentioned some other employers as well, like Bennett School District, Palmer Johnson Power Systems, Pacific Steel, Rosen Hotels. They're experiencing great success in fixing healthcare for their employees in the communities to which they serve. And they're literally spending, at, and in some cases, half of what other employers are spending per capita. And in your book, you provide employers and benefit advisors with five simple, easy to remember steps to relocalizing health. And the first letter of each action item spells out a word that we all know is local, L-O-C-A-L. So I'll, I'll go ahead and for our listeners kind of recap that leading up to this movement in value-based primary care. But L is for learn how to be liberated from the status quo, O, optimize health plan infrastructure, C, carve out PBM, A, add value-based primary care, and L, leave behind value-extracting PPO networks. So while steps one and three are changes that can be made invisible to the employee, adding value-based primary care is a step that is clearly visible to members in an incredibly positive way. And in your book, you provide some mind-blowing statistics. Like there's one where you say that 75% of Americans do not have a relationship with a primary care physician, and that was you know based on a survey finding. So can you provide... Dave, our listeners with some advice for how large employers can begin adding, if they haven't already, value-based primary care to their employees, you know, maybe through on-site clinics or direct primary care or other methods. And I would love to hear maybe how Rosen Hotels is doing that in advancing primary care that allows them to spend 55% less per capita on health benefits than the average employer. And then, and I guess if you could walk us through, I, I'm thinking a lot about the this collaborative that was formed a few years ago by Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan Chase, and it just hasn't lived up to the promises that it would disrupt the health insurance market and healthcare delivery. And you know, what are you seeing as maybe some of the new disruptors, maybe Walmart, in the work that they're doing to open comprehensive primary care centers across the country? Do you think they're going to prove to be successful and maybe move other large employers in this direction towards value-based primary care? First of all, let me just acknowledge Dr. Paul Grundy. His work has definitely influenced me. And when I talked about how primary care, if you look at places where he invests a lot of his time outside the U.S., like in Denmark, it's pretty amazing. 92% of the issues that people enter the healthcare system for can be fully addressed in a fully actualized primary care. It's kind of value-based primary care. That's not what most people experience in the U.S., in a fully actualized primary care like Rosen's, they look at the totality of health. That includes not only the docs and the nurses, includes social workers, health coaches, dietitians, physical therapists, behavioral health, pharmacists. It's all in there and it's all highly effective. And by the way, Rosen, you know, they're spending 55% less per capita on health benefits Cumulatively, in the 25 plus years they've been doing this, they have saved $425 million benchmark versus their competitors. And that's allowed them to grow tenfold in terms of number of employees and hotel beds while taking on no debt. They're actually the only major hotel to stay open 
during COVID and they didn't need a bailout from the government to do that. And you know, you touch on the Amazon Berkshire Hathaway JP Morgan deal. I, I wrote a couple pieces why it could be one of the largest impacts on healthcare, and then also the 10 mistakes that they should avoid to make a dent in healthcare. And I prior to this call, I went back and looked at that. They they made most of the mistakes unfortunately, that they should have avoided and and thus why they're not having the impact. Now, in fairness, I'll be very clear. The conventional wisdom that if you want to change healthcare via employers, you go through the jumbo employers is wrong. There's some exceptions. There's some good things they can do. Walmart's done good things with their centers of excellence, and I'm all for them driving change. But some of these large corporations move at the pace of Congress, and they have complexity They have employees all over the world. And so they're really not the place to drive initial change. Where we are seeing the change that's most interesting and most dynamic and really driving things is in the mid-market. This is the 50 to 5,000 employees. There's nearly 100 million Americans who are in these type of employers. And that that mid-market is really driving the change. They have you know, oftentimes it's family-owned businesses. The CEO actually knows the employees rather, and they drive the change like no other. And Rosen's a great example. When they started out this healthcare journey, they had about 500 employees at the time. They're now about 5,000. They can't afford to be fat and wasteful. Some of these big corporations candidly can afford to be wasteful. And so, again, there's good things they can do, like what Walmart's doing with partnering Oak Street Health, which is a great next generation primary care is fantastic. I mentioned their center of excellence, where for complex medical procedures, they have found that there's really high rates of misdiagnosis. I mean, it's 20% in cancer, it's it's 60% in musculoskeletal and And typically the employees who have the complex medical conditions in a given year, six to 8% of the employees can consume 70, 80% of the dollars. And so you really had to get that right. They found that 40% of the planned organ transplants that a community hospital was recommending were medically unnecessary when they took it for a second opinion at high quality places like the Mayo Clinic and Virginia Mason. And so Again, there's great things that large employers can do and have done. By and large, they've been asleep at the wheel. And by and large, they move so slow that you're better off driving iteration in the mid-market. And that's where we focus a lot of our energies. Dave, unfortunately, as it stands today, many community healthcare systems are controlled by these out-of-town owned health systems and health plans. That can mean that over 50% of the healthcare dollars are extracted out of local economies. Yet the healthcare system only drives less than 20% of health outcomes. So often the dollars being extracted out of local economies are dollars that were previously being spent on education, human services, public health, public safety, mental health, local aid, the social determinants of health that really drive the 80% plus of health outcomes. It's quite clear that status quo health plans have it all backwards, taking money away from the things that would actually improve healthcare and wastefully dumping substantial sums into things that only aim to address symptoms of underlying issues. In your book, you talk about how high-performing community-owned health plans do the opposite. Rather, they're focusing on the unique needs of the local community 
and working to address them before they balloon into bigger, more expensive problems. Can you talk about how leaders can form these consumer cooperatives where employers, unions, and local governments can work together to create a health plan owner mindset? And over time, do you think these community-owned health plans will allow us to extract better value from health plans by focusing more on the well-being of members? Also, what are the implications of these community-owned health plans in the home mitigating social determinants of health, improving outcomes, and freeing up previously squandered healthcare dollars? Yeah, and I'd start with defining community because people tend to think of community as a place-based thing, and it's, it's obviously that, but we also define these community-owned health plans in this kind of owner mindset versus the renter mindset. A lot of companies are just kind of renting a cruddy sick care plan that is very disempowering versus having an owner mindset because, gosh, if it's true what every CEO says, employees are our most valuable asset, don't you think you should should own, you know, and have an owner mindset to what stewards that valuable asset. And so we think about the fractals of community being the employers. That can be a community, could be an employer community, it could be a union community. And our social impact metric and kind of why we exist is we call it the Health Rosetta Dividend. And it's on this premise that we're spending and investing more than enough money to not only fund a world-class healthcare system, but to fund or restore funding to what drives 80 plus percent outcomes, as you mentioned, the social determinants of health. And so let's follow that Rosen story a little bit further because they've been doing, really the only thing that's unique about them is just been doing it longer than other people. And by the way, they're in Florida, which is 40% of the most expensive hospitals in the country are in Florida. So it's not an easy setting. Also their workforce, not easy either. 56% of their pregnancies are categorized high risk because of advanced maternal age and conditions like TB and HIV because a lot of their workforce came from a country that had no real formal healthcare system. Despite that, they're spending 55% less per capita with the best health benefits and benefits package I've heard of, of any company ever. And they not only have this amazing health plan, but because they're not squandering money, they can afford to pay for their employees' kids' education and the employees' college education. You can imagine what that does to their employee turnover. It's dramatically less than a typical hotelier. And you can tell when you, I've stayed at that hotel, you can tell the employees love that place. They love Mr. Rose and what he's done, but they didn't stop there. They took some of that dividend and they invested in a nearby community that is called Tangelo Park. And they're near International Drive where a lot of the tourists stay during, you know, when they come to Disney and, and so on. And Tangelo Park used to be the place where if you're a tourist and you wanted to, you know, get your drugs, you'd go to Tangelo Park. In fact, a good place to go to get set up with your drugs was the elementary school. So it was a tough situation. The Rosen basically took this health rosetta dividend and said, we're going to invest in kids and education in partnership with the school district. And they have gone from a three to one odd against getting a four-year degree for a kid coming out of that school to eight to one in favor of getting a four-year degree. Crime is down 80%. About every other year, high school graduation is 100%. It was horrific before. Some years, it's, it's very close to 100%. They really take this to heart, and they know that 
by investing in kids in the form of daycare, preschool, after-school programs. They funded 450 college educations. And the total investment in that is less than 5% of that health rosetta dividend, that delta between what they're spending and what other employers are, are frankly squandering. So it's really impressive what they've done. And it really gets at the heart of, you know, what's the American dream? And what is driving health and well-being? As you said earlier in the conversation, health doesn't start in a pill, doesn't start in a hospital. It starts with mom and dad and home and fans out from there. And so they've taken that to heart and really applied it. And guess what? A few years ago, they adopted another neighborhood five times the size. They're in discussions with the school district about doing more. And the great thing is some other communities are now studying it to look to replicate it because the dollar return on investment is incredible. Actually adding the epilogue to my book, the relocalizing health, really going into the story and some of the latest data. And and it's very timely, I think, because you know, it's been a lot of social unrest. There's certainly awareness around the challenge that black and brown communities have. And, and this community is overwhelmingly African-American, Afro-Caribbean, yet they've they've seen this kind of success. And so it's, it's within reach for any community who really wants to take the bull by the horns and takes a long-term approach. This isn't a two or three year fix, by the way. They were committed to it for the long-term. Dave, this is such an inspirational story and something that I think that a great way to end our conversation today, which is to discuss leadership. For those who've had the most success transforming benefits for their organizations, they've had to realize that a, a great plan design is not enough. They really understand that even improvements require leadership to bring everyone along, whether they're rank and file or senior executives. In Relocalizing Health, you outline a 10-step leadership model that includes things like treating employees like the most valuable asset, which you've talked about, creating a sense of urgency, developing a vision for better benefits, securing grassroots support, sustaining change through short-term wins, overcoming barriers to change and over-communicating, as well as consolidating improvements to build on gains and anchoring change into culture. Can you provide our listeners with some parting thoughts on the importance of leading change to transform healthcare and what CEOs and other top leaders in public and private organizations should be thinking about in this new era of post-COVID value-based healthcare? Yeah, and I think COVID is really, I actually said this back in March, I really feel like it's a World War II-like event. You know, we had fundamental change in healthcare system. You mentioned in the U.S., that was where the employer system came. The U.K., their NHS, maybe that's a little more of an analogous situation because their healthcare system was devastated by World War II. I mean, unfortunately, we're right in the midst of our healthcare system being quite devastated. And one of the things I think is important for folks to realize is, you know, there's nearly four trillion reasons to protect the status quo. And healthcare industry spends more on lobbying than oil and gas, defense industry, and financial services combined. And so the Calvary is not coming from DC to fix healthcare. At best, you're going to get a doubling down on the dysfunction. And we've seen both parties in full control. We're a fiercely nonpartisan organization. And that's the reality. So it's on us to drive the change. That has been true of all great societal change, whether it's civil rights like women's suffrage and more recent civil rights issues. And in our communities, we all have influence, but I would start with nurses, doctors, and pharmacists. They're the three most trusted professions in the country. 
And they have a trust that sometimes they haven't used to drive change. I think many of them are incredibly frustrated. They're, they're doing all they can and really heroic during COVID, but they realize their leadership has failed them. I mean, it's absurd that we are still having protective equipment shortages. You know, you, it was absurd at the outset of COVID that these organizations that can afford billion-dollar new medical towers don't have proper equipment to protect their workforce. But everyone has influence. I mean, everybody who's listening has influence. It might be at their employer, might be at City Hall because they're a taxpayer, or at the school district. But we can all say enough is enough, there is a better way. And you've seen it at large settings like New Jersey, where at the state level, back when Governor Christie was in, there was peace that was brokered between him, the Democrats, the, the unions, you know, because at the time they were having budget issues and Christie was was saying, you know, cut services, you know, cut spending. The Democrats were saying, you know, raise taxes and actually a union-backed think tank called America's Agenda said, no, there's actually a third way. Let's tackle healthcare. And, and just in the pharmacy spending in the first three years, they saved $1.6 billion. At the other end of the spectrum, places like Tyler, Texas, it's purely been driven by employers there. And we see this dynamic where it's kind of rules of three, where you have three employers do something in a given locale. Nobody notices about your building muscle of these new models and understanding the landscape. You get nine, some people start noticing you're building some case studies. Some providers are recognizing this type of health plan that's not the fancy, expensive national logo. And then you get to 27, and it's pretty much game over. That's really the tipping point. The employers, the CEOs can't keep their mouths shut because they're spending 40% less with superior benefits. And what this all comes down to and what we see in our community in this movement is really very exciting and, and something I've personally experienced that we all have this role to play. And the way I would sum it up is, is it's great to have a job, certainly better to have a job than not have a job, but it's better to have a career than a job. But you know what's better than a career? Having a calling. And that's when you know, the old saying, you know, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. That's what people in this community they are doing. They are called to do this and it, they feel it's a duty to their, their community, their family, to themselves. And it, it couldn't be more fun. And I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a clinician at all. I need them. And I need superintendents of school districts. I mean, everybody has a role, regular citizens sharing and spreading the word that can be their calling. And that would really be what I'd encourage. I think everybody realizes people want to have purpose and meaning. And once you find that calling, it's it's just a great place to be. And some good can come out of the mess that we've had. In fact, a lot of good. And so that would be my parting word is, is join us. The bus has got lots of seats on it. We're going on a great journey. We're going to have some maybe flat tire here or there, hit some potholes. But we, we know where we're going is a great place and invite everybody to join us. And so thanks again for the opportunity to be on your show and have this great conversation. What a great message to end the interview today. And, you know, just we can be the change we want to see in the world. Dave Chase, author of Relocalizing Health, such a great book. And thank you again for joining us today in the Race to Value. 